thanks for joining another episode of It's Her Voice. Today we'll be speaking to Jen Welch, a comedian based in New York and podcast host of Lady ADHD. She is the co-founder and producer of What a Joke, a national comedy fest which raised over $50,000 for the ACLU or the American Civil Liberties Union. She's also been very open about her struggles of grief and sexual assault in the media. Today we'll be talking about how comedy has helped her deal with some of those struggles. Just as a warning, in case you have any young listeners, this episode contains strong sexual references. So before getting into your career of comedy, you were a tap dancer for 15 years. What got you into that? Like, I was put into dance classes at, like, two and a half, and um, tap just really, like, stuck with me, or, or it just really kind of, like, connected with me, and uh, it, it just became, like, my thing, you know, um, for years, and I still, I still do it. Um, I, I teach, like, beginner classes to adults, and, you know. And you danced competitively, right? Yes. And like uh, would perform at like um, every summer at like the New York State Fair, you know, and stuff like that. And like, you know, recitals and competitions. And uh, I was um, at the dance studio almost as much as I was at school during the week. Um, So it was like my second home, you know. Did you always want to pursue tap dancing full time? I wanted to look into doing like choreography or something, you know, something dance related in college. Um, But my mom was, uh, the reaction I got from her was that um, if I, if I do that, I'm going to end up, uh, people who go into the dance field end up addicted to drugs. (laughs) (laughs) I know she's like, you're going to end up on drugs. And so um, I don't, I don't know where that came from because she's the one who got me into dance, but I don't know if she ever thought it would be like a profession or something, you know? Um, And I, So I ended up not going into the dance field uh, and then going to film school and then getting addicted to drugs. It came came full circle and uh, no longer addicted to drugs, but you know, uh, it was just funny kind of how it worked out. It's like, well, that's gonna happen anyways, no matter what I do, so I may as well be dancing. In terms of like performance and in terms of, choreography and like directing and putting something together you know um and thinking about how something's staged and how it looks on stage and things like that like I think that that's something I've kind of carried with me through everything I've done you know in adulthood um yeah so it's kind of uh had an influence what was so what was it uh what was the thing that made you go into made you want to go into comedy basically people laugh at me (laughs) it's like one of the things like I my whole life whenever I've tried to do something like that is like serious or like uh you know um sexy or something like that you know it's like I don't get the reaction that I'm expecting you know I get the uh I get 
the laughs and um i think that's something actually like looking back that's something that's something that my um that my dance teacher picked up on um you know around that age when like um you know a lot of um girls were starting to do more sort of like a not like adult adult but like adult you know themed uh choreography and stuff like that like suddenly i like was just very awkward and very you know whatever and so she had me lean into like doing stuff that was like more about entertainment and more about like enjoyment and bringing joy and like laughter and comedy stuff you know um so i had that experience from like a young age of uh being on stage and getting laughs and like knowing how amazing that feels, you know? Because that's the thing that like, like comedy is really one of the few uh, types of performance where you get like an immediate, like uh, the word I'm going with is aural, like A-U-R-A-L, like a reaction, like you, you get like feedback, you get like a feedback you can hear. <laughs> you know, um, that tells you like, yes, you are, you are making people happy. Like they are enjoying what you're doing. And, um, and you know, like that is really, really satisfying. Um, so I started, you know, I started getting that from a young age and like talking about like, uh, <laughs> going back to like drugs for whatever reason, like that is a high, like getting that reaction, like to something that you're doing on stage is like insane. It's the best feeling. So I think that I like kind of like swung in the other direction where I was like, I'm going to go into like, uh, I'm going to go into film and I'm going to write really serious movies because I'm very sad now and I'm going to write very like, you know, I'm going to write the next like Requiem for a Dream and I'm going to like, you know, only watch serious things and very serious, 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 you know, um, and everything I would write in film school would just get laughs and I was like, God darn, like, <laughs> and um, I guess I just kind of leaned into it, you know? At a certain point, you just have to accept that you're funny. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that's not a bad thing. It's not, it's not a bad thing. It's, it's, it can be difficult at times because it's not, it's not always appreciated. I think it took a while for me to get to a point where I could perform again, though, because I, even though I had all that experience growing up of like uh, performing in a way that got laughs on stage and knowing how satisfying that was, um, I never had to speak on stage. I never had to use my voice, you know? Um, and that was terrifying to me. Uh, so I, I've always been like a little bit of like a shy, quiet person. Um, so the idea of getting up in front of everybody and speaking was like, yeah, no, we're not going to ever do that, you know? Um, and so I moved to Los Angeles after, uh, after college and, um, you know, started working in the film industry, got jobs out there, um, was trying to just kind of like make it work, but really still having this like sort of like acre desire to, uh, be doing some sort of comedy. And so I got into like writing sketch comedy and I got into like, um, 
some like writers workshops for like half hour pilots and stuff like that and just really um loving it and and doing great and getting good feedback and getting mentors and you know and, and all of this stuff and um but it was missing that thing it was missing that that immediate validation and reaction you know it was always just like you have to hear way after like you don't get to hear people in the moment reacting to what you're doing or what you're writing you know um and uh after a few years of kind of just like being out there and i mean i was out there for seven years but like in terms of like working towards uh possibly getting like a writer's job a, a writing job or, or something like that out there um you know i just kept uh i just kept running up against these sort of like um roadblocks you know that um were kind of like systemic at the time like just things like oh well you don't write like a woman so we don't know how we would put you in a writer's room like basically saying like we only hire one writer on on like most writers rooms for tv shows only hire one woman at the time this was like t like 11 years ago so if you are going to be the one female writer in the writer's room you have to write quote like a woman which whatever that means i don't know what that means so i would spend like <laughs> i'm like well okay i guess i'll write like a multi-camera sitcom about a married couple then and <laughs> i don't know <laughs> like, what am i doing it's like not what i want to be writing so i'll just like slog away at this um and one woman wait hang on you can you can only have one woman in a a writer's room how does that work for for so for most writer rooms in the in the u.s like so if it's like a uh like especially like with a comedy show um you know you have like a room of writers maybe like 10 writers on a show and at that time it was all mostly white men um and maybe one woman or one minority or maybe uh that woman is the minority you know <laughs> like what that what a win-win that is or for them you know uh not for us but um yeah so it was just really um discouraging i guess uh and I got to a point where like, I, I, I wasn't doing well in LA um, and I just uh, having a hard time out there, like finding like my people. Um, I was in like a bad marriage. Um, I just wasn't, it was like, it, it kind of like got to a point like in 2010 where I was like, this is not sustainable, whatever it is that we're doing here. And so I convinced my ex-husband to moved to New York uh, so I could kind of um, see how I do over here. Um, I'm from the East Coast. LA never made sense to me, but I just, you know, I went to film school, so that's where you go. Um, when I got to New York, it's like suddenly I didn't have like my little like writer's workshops and I didn't have like my um, sketch people who I met out and, you know, I, I, I didn't have a network out here. And so I took a, um, this theater, um, comedy school called The Pit, the People's Improv, Improv Theater, they had a level zero improv class and there was no class show at the end of it. And I was like, great, sign me up because I then I can like meet some people and I don't have to 
get on stage. And after the first class, I was like, oh, this is everything. This is, this is, <laughs> this is what I've been waiting for my whole life. You know, and, and that got me to doing what I really, really wanted to be doing, which is doing stand-up. And it is so fulfilling and lovely and like, yeah, stand-up's like everything. <laughs> Do you remember your first show? Oh yeah. Yep. Uh, my first show was uh, my friends Frank and Joe uh, had me on a show that they ran in a thrift store slash barber shop in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and it was packed and I uh, did all of my bad jokes and I got laughs and it felt amazing and it uh, you know, I definitely, it was definitely my first show, you know, but, um, it was incredible. Even more incredible than my first show, though, was my first bomb. The first time I bombed on stage was, like, the best moment ever. Like, because that's, like, such a nightmare, you know, the idea of, like, getting up there and just, like, nothing working and nothing, like, and people just, like, staring at you and, like, whatever. Um, you know, that's, like the last thing that you would think would be like, but that I think was like the most exhilarating feeling I've ever had in my life once I got off stage after that, because I, because it's like this thing that like you dread, you know, and, but you like get off stage and you like did it and you survived it. And it's like, well, now I can do anything. Like now I can literally do anything. Oh, it's the best show I ever had was um, a comedian friend of mine, Emily Winter, who's so funny and so like just wonderful. Um, she like reached out to me and we ended up like putting together a um, basically I noticed like through my like social media and like my connections with comedians in other cities that like everybody was feeling what we were feeling here in New York. So this was during uh, the election when Trump was running for president. Reached out to a bunch of like good like producers we knew uh, in our network like across the country and we got we ended up getting 88 shows go up in 33 cities over the three days of inauguration day weekend um, and so in 2017 um, and uh, all under the, the the brand name of like what a joke a national comedy festival and we raised over fifty thousand dollars for the ACLU um, through all of these. The shows. American Civil Liberties Union, or the ACLU, is a non-profit organization founded in 1920, which defends and preserves individual rights and liberties guaranteed to every person in the U.S. Their work includes opposing the death penalty, supporting same-sex marriage and the right of LGBT people to adopt, supporting reproductive rights such as birth control and abortion rights, and eliminating discrimination against minorities. It was amazing and it was just this like huge sense of like community because we only had like two and a half months to plan it, you know, so it was like non-stop, uh, just stuff that had to get done and our final show here in new york city was at this venue called rough trade that like has space for like about like 300 people um and uh it was that saturday night uh of that weekend which means the uh the women's march was 
happened that day, right? And like that energy from the Women's March was just like contagious. And a lot of the audience had come from there. So it was just this like amazing, like just, uh, I can't even explain like or describe the energy in the room that night. And I got to perform, you know, at the end of this festival, like uh, already on a high from like knowing how much money we were like, like how successful this ended up being, you know? Um, and then I got to like perform, you know, in front of these 300 people who are just like so there and so on board for what's happening. And it was like, I, it was, it was like transcendent, you know? Like you're just like not in your body. <laughs> you're just like, what is happening, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, how do I get this all the time? Which you can't obviously, but, uh, yeah, I mean, what a gift to have that moment, you know, in your life. It's just... I mean, what, what more can you ask for? It's incredible. So my dad passed away two weeks after that big festival, which was, uh, again, like whiplash gut punch time. Um, and uh, I, amongst all the other feelings I had after, you know, uh, spending, I, I spent his last week with him in the hospital, he had lung cancer and, um, oh, it was amazing in so many ways and beautiful in so many ways and devastating, obviously. And um, I got back to Brooklyn and the only thing that I could think about was the fact that like, I was going like, I'm like, how am I ever going to date again? Like, for whatever reason, my brain latched on to the fact that I'm single uh, through this, you know, um, and uh, I... <laughs> I just kept thinking about how funny it, the idea of like telling all of my Tinder matches that my dad just died was like, that was just so funny to me. Like the, the idea of somebody being so like uh, me and by somebody, I mean me being so desperate to like date during this, that I would go on Tinder and just like, you know, whatever. Um, and I think I've seen it. This is Dead Dad Tinder, right? On Instagram. De yeah, Dead Dad Tinder is what I ended up calling it. And, um, you know, I was really like, again, I don't like being mean with stuff. So I was really like on the fence about like, how do I, or, I guess like not on the fence, but I was really concerned about like, how do I do this in a way where it's, I'm not mocking the guys, really? I mean, I kind of am, but really the, the joke of it is me, you know? that like I'm going through this awful thing and all the only thing I can think about is like I'm single <laughs> you know um and uh so like I put in my like tinder bio like I'm a comedian my dad just died so like it was like right there you know um and uh basically anything that a guy messaged me I was just like oh I'm doing great Steve my dad just died you know or like whatever like uh, or like I'm not doing good like <laughs> you know like basically like just incorporating it into like my first response to whatever it was that they messaged me and it was such a like 
again, it was like such a gift of a project. It connected with people, you know, like I ended up being interviewed by like the Washington Post and Cosmo. And I'm like, this was like, not even like a month after my dad passed away. So I'm like doing these interviews and I'm like still in shock. And I'm just like, what is happening? <laughs> you know, <laughs> but the messages that I got from people and like, it, it, I guess by doing it, it showed me that I wasn't alone in this sort of like uh, bananas reaction to the situation that I was in because like people who'd been through it like really like connected with it. So I read that you were diagnosed with ADHD, right? Um, when were you diagnosed? I was diagnosed with ADHD when I was uh, 28, so I spent most of my life undiagnosed and just kind of like wondering like what the F is wrong with me, like why can't I, why can't I function? Um, and uh, I, putting this podcast out there where I'm just like talking to other women with ADHD, um, kind of like unmasked, you know, like uncamouflaged, you know, um, and kind of like seeing like i i didn't realize how lonely adhd was until i started doing the podcast and actually talking to other women about how we kind of like perceive the world and and how you know our experiences uh being like neurodivergent in that way and everything um and like kind of seeing like oh it's not just me who you know does xyz So you've also spoke a lot about in the media about highlighting uh, sexual abuse and the difficulty of reporting it and your own struggle with it. Um, how was it like reporting it, reporting your experiences to the NYPD? Oh, yeah, it was. Um, It was worse than, I, I mean, it was almost as bad as the incident itself that I was reporting. It was, um, again, it's like walking into one of these things where it's like uh, the system is supposed to be here to help me and then realizing in the moment that that's not what the system is for at all. You know, um, I reported this one, like I have, I have a history of sexual assault. Um, I have a history of like abuse in that way. Uh, this was the first time that I reported something though. Um, it happened when, um, uh, it, it was just so clear cut. It happened when I was sober, he was sober. Um, he, I found out you know, six months after it happened that he had done the same thing to like another woman I knew. Um, and like almost like exactly the same situation. Um, and I, when I found out he did it to her, I was like, I have to do something about this. Like, cause now it's not just me, you know what I mean? Now it's like, I know that it, once you know it's not just you, it's like, fuck, it's not my fault. It's not something I did, you know? So, you know, he was a fellow comedian. Um, we were in like the same like community and everything. And I 
you know, I, I kind of uh, spoke up about him. And once I did that, I kind of felt like I had it. I, I felt like I owed it to myself and to uh, other women, I guess. Um, I felt like if I reported it, then I knew that I would not back down in any way from like this situation. Like I, I felt like I have to report it. I have to report it because I know that it happened to another woman and I have to report it because I need people to see that like, I'm not fucking around, you know? Um, and so I went and I, I, you know, it had happened six months prior. Your brain, like when you go through a trauma like this, your brain protects you until you are ready to deal with it. And I wasn't ready to deal with it right away. Like I remembered that something weird happened that night. I remembered that I freaked out for some reason, but I didn't remember what happened before I freaked out. All I remembered was that I freaked out. And um, six months later, uh, you know, something just triggered the memory. And, you know, just these like moments of like, wait a minute, wait a minute oh my god, wait a minute. <laughs> like, and um, so I, when I went to report, I, I kind of like, I, my goal wasn't that they would like, you know, go arrest him immediately or anything like that. I just wanted a report on file so that if any other women had reported him or if any other woman reported him in the future, my account would be there police station was uh the precinct was like right down the street from my apartment i just like walked down there one day i sat at a pizza place had a slice of pizza and a root beer before going in um and then went in and um it was i mean i can't even they put me in like a tiny room off the main like lobby of the precinct and they never even shut the door of the room um, they, I asked to talk to a detective, but instead of giving me a detective, they just gave me like the only female uniformed officer who was like there working that day. So she's just, she's just like a cop, you know? Um, she supposedly worked for the domestic violence, uh, squad, but I would be surprised if that was actually true. Um, uh, she, uh, you know, part of what the incident was, was that like, um, it was a guy who I had been in a looking like with perspective, looking back and going through trauma therapy afterwards, which I needed a lot of trauma therapy after this guy, because it was bad. Um, very like emotionally manipulative and emotionally abusive and, um, using sex to be physically abusive. Um, but under the guise of like, you know, oh, it's just like kinky, whatever. But like, oh, but most of you being kinky is you just kind of like beating me. Like what's happening? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I guess it's kind of like gaslighting, isn't it really? Yeah, yeah. A lot of gaslighting, a lot of like um, putting it on me, you know, a lot of if I like, if I say I'm not comfortable with something, he just like will ignore me until like, I'm like, okay, I'm fine with it and I'll even go further. You know what I mean? Just like this, like sort of um, this weird dynamic that just like kind of happened. And I was very newly sober when I got involved with him and he had been um, sober for like seven years. So this is somebody who like could 
like now knowing what I know about him, he would spot people with vulnerabilities. Like an another woman, not the woman I mentioned earlier, but another woman who had like an ongoing thing with him that was very much like what I went through. Um, uh, we um, were at very similar places when we met him. She had just gotten out of rehab and I was like newly sober. And um, he, he just like knew how to like spot vulnerable people. So it's like the person I'm reporting is somebody I had had a relationship with. Um, oh, so basically the incident itself, like we hadn't seen each other for a few months, you know, and I knew that like when we were seeing each other, like he had really pushed my boundaries a lot further than I wanted to go, you know, and I felt like kind of uncomfortable with that, but there was still something about it where I was like, I need to, like, if I do things right this time, then it'll work out, you know? Like, it was always in my head, it was like, oh, it's because I'm doing something wrong. I was like, if I just go into this tonight with, like, stronger boundaries, I, like, wrote a list of boundaries for myself, like, that night <laughs> that I was going to adhere to. And one of those was that, like, we had to use protection. And, um, and... I brought condoms with me because I knew he wouldn't have them, you know? Like, I, I was like... Um, and so, you know, when we got together that night, I, I was, it was like a discussion, like we need to use condoms. And, uh, he was like all annoyed about it. And I'm like, no, we need to use them. And so we did. And then, um, and then we went to bed and then in the middle of the night, um, like, uh, I woke up to him without, you know, I, I woke up to him basically whatever getting getting what he wanted which was to have which was to yeah um so uh and a part of this like and i'm sorry if this is like graphic but it's like i mean it's it's part of the situation but like um but like i had gotten my period like er earlier that day and like he like i woke up to him taking my tampon out basically um, yeah, so I, I was just, like, frozen from that moment, you know, because I was like, I can't believe, like, yeah, like, <laughs> what? <laughs> um, so it's like, this is like a plan, like, he had a plan, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, yeah, he definitely did. Um, is there any updates on on the case? So there's no case against him. Um, basically, like, reporting it, um, they told me that I didn't say no and I didn't fight back, so it's not rape. And I, and just not using a condom when I had a boundary about using condoms wasn't rape. And I'm like, no, that's not true. And, um, and I'm like, how can I fight back if I'm asleep? Like, what does that, like, I, he's like, and they're like, well, he stopped when you told him to stop. And I'm like, yeah, but that just because somebody stops raping you when you ask them to stop raping you doesn't mean they didn't rape you <laughs> like that doesn't negate the rape you know um and then uh you know i uh, the sergeant her boss came in uh a few times because i was like planted i was like i'm not moving you know until i talked to somebody in the special victims uh division like i'm not i'm not moving um and uh the sergeant came in and he like picked up my driver's license and he was like this is you you look very attractive in your driver's license and I'm like are you fucking kidding me <laughs> like, really and then he told me that um you know how it is when you're in a relationship with somebody you know and like you know things happen in the middle of the night and it's like my wife isn't reporting me for rape like 
what are you doing? What? Yeah. And I'm just like, what is my life right now? Like, what is happening? Um, and uh, basically, I left there with a, like, a report where, you know, I had to write down my description of what happened. They wrote down their description of what I told them. It didn't match up at all. Um, they marked it down as like a dispute between, you know, it was like a domestic violence. Like basically there's this like specific, ever since the OJ Simpson trial, uh, ever since OJ, uh, there's a specific form that any domestic violence call needs to have like filled out, right? If the, if the police visit, this form needs to be filled out. There's an option on it to just like mark it as a dispute, which is like, really? Like <laughs> a dispute? And like, I found out after the fact, so like two years later, this big report came out from the, uh, from like the NYPD's like Department of like Inspection or whatever it is. Um, basically like their oversight committee, like this big report came out of like all of these, it, it was basically outlining all of these uh, standards that the department was supposed to meet like um, in the past 10 years that were like put in place like 10 years ago and then how it's failed to meet all of them <laughs> since, since that happened. And like basically in their failure to meet these standards, like they set it up so that I am walking into a situation where I am going to be traumatized. You know, like one of the things that they, to deal with the lack of funding, the lack of uh, uh, staff or, you know, detectives, the lack of training. One of the things that they decided was that they would only escalate cases to the Special Victims Division um, if it was a stranger rape. And nine, like 89 or 90% of rapes are partner like or, or acquaintances or somebody you know so i walk in there saying that like somebody who i had a previous relationship with like um assaulted me and it's a given that i'm not going to talk to anybody but i don't know that going into it so then who do you talk to uh supposedly nobody he just doesn't he doesn't get reported and so people who and and it's like having done a ton of research around this in the meantime you know having like i i tend to like process things by over-researching them. Um, uh, you know, men who do this to their partners, um, it's not a one-off thing. This is what they do to their partners. This is how they see their partners, right? Um, it, it, like they are, there was like a study done on, on a, a college campuses in America where it's like, you ask a group of men, um, like, have you ever raped anybody? And obviously they're all like, no. But then it's like, uh, have you ever had uh, sex with a woman uh, when she was passed out? Have you ever had sex with a woman who was too drunk to uh, speak? Have you ever had sex with a woman uh, when she resisted or said no? Have you ever had, you know, whatever, like asking it in this kind of like softer way. And it's like basically 80% of uh, incidents on college campuses are committed by like 10% of the male students it's uh repeat repeat offenders it's all it's all, yeah so like if a, if a guy is a guy who does this he's a guy who does this that's why i was able to find like two other women just in my community he was only like he had a long-term girlfriend he was only single for like a year and in that year 
there were three of us <laughs> who like were like devastated by him. So basically this report came out and um, another survivor who I met through uh, Twitter, uh, she was like featured in an article about it and she gave me a number for um, a deputy inspector in the special victims division who was like, they were really working hard to like get all of this fixed. Like they wanted this fixed, you know, but it's like the higher ups or like whatever it was like, um, so I was able to like meet with actual special victims detectives at that point. So this is like two years after I initially reported. At this point, he's moved to Los Angeles. He's back with his old ex-girlfriend. They're married. They're having a baby. They had a baby, you know, like, um, and I was given the opportunity to like file a complaint against the NYPD, which I did, um, just like a standard complaint. Uh, this was before the lawsuit. Um, and to um, uh, actually have an actual investigation on him. So I actually got to go through the process of an actual um, investigation with actual trained detectives. It meant a lot to me that I got to do that. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, it was uh, very healing. In a lot of ways, it just made clear like how screwed the system is as well, you know, um, because there were just certain, like we're going through this two years after the fact, he's not even in the state anymore. Like they flew to Los Angeles to interview him um, like that was the best they could offer me. They're like, we're not going to be able to like, uh, do anything. We can like give him like basically the, the, we can go there to his home while his wife is home and interview him. Like she will see us show up, <laughs> you know? And, um, and so that happened, um, which is something I suppose. Um, that must be hard. So he's he's free now? Like, he's just out there doing whatever he wants to do scot-free? Yeah, he's, he's got a wife and a kid and he's out there. But you know what? No matter what, he's always him. And he's always that sick. And he's always got to live knowing what he does to people. And I don't have to be him. So that is a gift that's like for me that is like I mean his punishment is that he has to be him and to live with himself I wish his punishment were something more than that I mean part of the reason why I went through with all why I actually went through with the investigation was knowing that he was about to have a daughter and that she would be having she would be a teenager at some point and she would have friends over and she would have you know just like knowing that like I I just wanted to see like what I could do like it's not again it's like it's not it's hard because it's like it's not my job to protect everybody from him but I also have to live with myself So my final question to you is that what advice would you give to someone, particularly women, who feel like they aren't confident enough 
to be a comedian or to pursue a career in comedy, for example? Oh my gosh, I here's what I will say. I will say that I don't even know you and I know that you're funnier than half of the men out there that are trying comedy. At least half, like maybe like 70% of the men who are who are attempting to be comedians right now, who think that they have a voice and a story that needs to be heard. I can guarantee you that you're funnier than at least 80% of them, right? Because we're like, we're human beings. Like if we're not, if we are not taking up space and if we are making ourselves small and we are like, um, uh, trying to be polite and trying to, you know, uh, abide by like whatever expectations are being put on us or whatever, like what's, what is the point of what we're like, what is the point? Like, why are we here? Like nobody would put anybody who's putting those expectations on you doesn't have your best interest at heart, right? A society, a society uh, built around uh, making women feel as though they can't voice their opinions or voice uh, what's going on for them. I mean, that was like a big thing with me with the sexual assault stuff once I spoke up about it was like, why am I carrying this shame around? This isn't my shame, you know? And why am I like, uh, why am I expected to not tell his secrets, you know, when his secrets have traumatized me? Like when I have PTSD now, when I have to like remove a tampon, like why do I have to live with that? But he doesn't have to live with his actions that are causing this, you know? And the society that sets it up so that women can't have a voice is a society that perpetuates that sort of culture. Your voice is important. Your story is important. Like even if it's not stand-up comedy, find your soapbox and stand on it. Thanks for listening to another episode of It's Her Voice. You can follow us on our social media, It's Her Voice PC, or support us on our latest project where we are finding a solution for menstrual pain at periodharmony.com. Thanks again and speak soon.